and we're finally starting to hit the the uh, the other side of the of the tunnel here and and in february january february time frame starting to get out of the covid uh, situations and delinquencies occupancy is starting to tick up and then the snowstorm happens in dallas and it completely <laughs> good grief it, it completely um, took this property and just wrecked it Are you starting your journey into real estate business or entrepreneurship? Are you in need of strategies to help you reach your daily goals? That's right. Then the Oliver Perry Show is for you. Come and get the experiences and strategies to help you be successful. And now, your host. You know who it is, sis? Oliver Perry. Oliver Perry. Steven, what's up, man? How are you today, sir? Oliver, it's great to be here. I'm a huge fan of the show. You've done a great job so far and really looking forward to diving into this and adding some value to your audience. Hey, man, that's the way to get this podcast started. A little bit of butter never hurt anybody. <laughs> hey, that's fantastic, man. I appreciate you for watching and taking in, taking interest in the show. I really do appreciate those kind words. So let's let's drive. We're not even going to drive straight into multifamily because I want to make sure the audience knows who you are and something about you. Outside of the fact that you're a military or sorry, former military, you are a multifamily real estate investor and just an all around good guy. I want to make sure you have the opportunity to kind of talk about yourself and I'm going to let the floor give to you. Yeah. So um, I, I guess I'd start by just saying that, um, you know, typical, typical childhood um, grew up in a, a nice family home in um, Newton, Georgia. And um, started in college, started to gravitate towards the military route, did ROTC. Um, then I've spent some time in the military, three to four years um, as an army officer. Nice. And during that time, I just kind of realized, you know, learned a lot about myself as far as leadership um, and and what I may want to do in life. And, and just started realizing that, you know, military wasn't something that I wanted to do uh, forever. And so right. just kind of started thinking and kind of brainstorming on what those next steps might be. I ended up going into a corporate leader development program at CoreLogic, and it's uh, CoreLogic is a company that um, revolves around the uh, the real estate industry, and so it really sparked that real estate um, that real estate interest. Mm-hmm. And right about the same time, real estate was really the top of mind for me as in terms of wealth creation. It was really something that started to become a passion and really started to blossom um, during that 2015 uh, timeframe. And so when you combine when you combine that with my savers mentality, I've always been a huge saver. I've been really um, into the FI. Um, if you're familiar with the FIRE movement, um, really passionate about um, you know creating that financial independence and uh, working towards, you know, whatever lifestyle or, or outcome you want to go um, to live. That was kind of all fuel to my fire for wealth um, creation in the form of real estate. So that's kind of really what led me into real estate. And mm-hmm. then there, 2015 through 2021, I've been really consistent with doing at least one deal or excuse me, one uh, real estate investment per year, um, mm-hmm. which has kind of led me to where I'm at um, actively pursuing multifamily investments. Nice, man. That's, that's, that's a, that's a hefty, hefty little background there. That's not bad, man. That's fantastic. So let me ask you, man, what, tell me a little bit, cause you mentioned the fires movement thing. Can you tell me more about that? Let's, let's really give the viewers some, uh, some value in that sense. Yeah. So fire stands for financial independence, retire early. 
and I like to chop off the retirement early standpoint or or the the retirement early. I don't mm-hmm. believe in necessarily retiring early. I think it's uh, the idea that uh, you could retire early and you know coast through life is just not something that um, I want to personally be doing. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that for anyone out there. I just have so much more drive than that. And so for me, what it means is that financial independence. It means um, having the ability to do whatever I want at whatever point in time I want. So that's ultimately when it when it comes down to real estate and investing and anything I do outside of my W two job, that's really ultimately what I focus on is creating that financial independence, creating that flexibility in my in my life and my family's life. Okay. So re- so then really what you're saying is uh, not what you're saying, but how you're kind of for layman's terms, that's kind of your at your your azimuth. Your azimuth when whenever you, you know, gotta make that left or right decision, you know exactly what to do because you have that basis. That's a, that's a really really smart way to go about it. That really makes sense. So so how how far into your journey when it came from multifamily to core logic to uh, be military? At what point in that journey did you discover that the fires was the way that you really wanted to go, and how did you discover that? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was kind of always um, a concept that was kind of brewing. I don't think it was something that naturally um, was just sparked by an uh, by an instant or by a particular uh, year that right. within the last few years. I think it's been something you know from my teenage years. I've always I've always been a saver, and so I think it's just kind of culminated over the past. Uh, we'll call it five to ten years, and over the past. Um, you know, two or three, it's really come to a head and it's really taken a life of its own as I've been able to acquire more real estate, as I've been able to build more cash flow. I've started to really start to pay attention to the numbers. I, I have a FI tracker. Um, I have, you know, how much cash flow I need per month um, in order to create that flexibility for my life. So I think it's I think it's just kind of um, over time, kind of taken a life of its own and something that's really started to materialize here the last few years. But it, to your point, um, you're, you're totally right. It's it's a azimuth. It's a North Star. It gives you something to actually shoot for rather than rather than just accumulating to accumulate and for for no real reason. It's it, right. at the you've got to have a purpose for what you're doing. And for me, a greater purpose than to create that flexibility and that uh, that lifestyle that, that you may eventually want. Wow. Okay. That, that's that's really good. So let me so let me ask you this: with your experience in leadership and your experience now in the multifamily realm, and and as you said, you really started to pay attention to those numbers as a leader. I know I find it sometimes difficult to teach others about how to watch their own money. What's your advice to those who are really trying to get their a handle on what they're doing in life, as far as the funding is concerned, to be able to have the opportunity to invest? I think it first starts with making it as simple as possible. Um, right. the, when, when you, when you think about a uh, state invest or, um, other type of investments that, and, and it sounds grandiose or it sounds like I can never do that. Um, I think the, the easiest thing to do uh, and the first step to do is make it as simple as possible. And for me, that first step is to track, to track what you're spending, to understand what you're spending. Just by tracking it alone, you'll be able to uh, really understand where there are holes in your budget or where your where your money is going. Once you understand where your money is going, it doesn't mean to 
to be completely frugal, to be cheap. Um, there, there's a, there's a, there's a fine line between being cheap, but then also, uh, really watching what you spend for and watching, um, making sure that you have a high savings rate. Uh, right. So what I like to do is I like to spend in the areas that really add value to my life and my family's life and mm-hmm. then coercively um, in the areas that don't add any value. So I'll give you an example. For me personally, having a nice car, you know, isn't some, I'm not a car guy. It's not something that adds a lot of value. I need something that gets point A to point B. So for me to, for me to put $20,000 into a car is just a waste. Um, right. It's just going to sit uh, in my garage. So for me, I have a Honda Civic 2012. I could buy a Tesla if I wanted to, but I've mm-hmm. got a Honda Civic parked in my garage that, you know, I'll probably, I'll probably drive for the next 10, 15 years and my kids will have it. So, um, <laughs> I love it. I, for me, I mean, I think that, I think that that's kind of the way to look at it is, is if you're a car person, find another way to find another way to cut and, 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 um, create and add value into your life where it makes sense. But, but, um, you know, for me, it all starts with that savings rate because if you're not able to effectively save and effectively build income that's not in retirement vehicles, you're never going to be able to create those opportunities and be um, present in opportunities that may materialize. That's that's really great advice. I, I found, and I'm, you know, we're both kind of from the same circles, so you've heard this particular thing I'm going to say, but. Um, what you pay attention to grows. And I found that as I've started to really lock down on the numbers when it comes to what's coming in the house, what's coming out the house, where I'm investing, where I'm not investing, as I'm really holding all those numbers, I'm seeing the numbers change because I'm paying attention to what's happening. I'm more cognizant that I don't want to have, let's say, a $30,000 bill every three quarters from eating stuff like food. It's silly, right? right? So having the ability, like you said, to be able to track that is is really paramount. Um, so let me, let me, let's go on to some multifamily stuff. With those same principles in mind, how do you handle as you are starting? Because, you know, we all don't start in multifamily at the high spot. We start at the low spot, right? (laughs) Don't know what you're doing. You're kind of flailing in the wind. How did you balance your money as it was coming in as opposed to you taking that same money and spending it on training or mentorship or what have you to really master your multifamily? Yeah, so it's a it's a good question, right? Because um, there's a lot of training and a lot of mentorship programs out there. And that Absolutely. was definitely one Absolutely. thing that I considered. Um, for me, one of the things that drew to me was being a limited partner. And I thought it was a really good a way to get into the multifamily business, a way to get exposure, a way to get credibility and a way to get experience. And right. certainly there's some hurdles with that. Um, the, the the first and most obvious is that it requires a $50,000 minimum buy-in. Um, but for me, for me, I felt like it was the right way to do it, um, right. to get that experience, to get that exposure with um, a sponsorship group, to see what it's like to be a limited partner. For the for me, that was that was a critical step because if if I were going to have limited partners in my own deals one day. I wanted to be able to say and, and sit in that seat and know what it was like to be communicated with. What did I what did I perceive of the sponsorship group when they sent out reports? What did I look at in the reports? What would have been helpful for me to, to view in the reports? What questions would, would I have? Um, so that for me was a really eye-opening experience. And, and for the first two or three limited partnerships that I did, I asked a lot of questions. And the sponsors were were really gracious and and uh, you know kind of opened up the playbook a little bit to to a degree. And so 
for me, it was just a really good learning experience and a, a good way to um, assimilate to the multifamily experience. Um, you know, one thing that I like to kind of point to is I usually like to fire, um, and, and there's, you know, there's a book by Michael Collins, um, Good to Great. I, I may be, I may be mi- uh, missing on the author's name there, but uh, Good to Great, the one of the concepts is fire bullets, not cannonballs. So I didn't want to go all in into multifamily unless I knew it was the right thing for me. And so that was that was a piece of the puzzle was that limited partner engagement to really understand if that was something that I wanted to do long term. Fire bullets, not cannonballs. Not yeah, so it's a, con- a it's a concept of testing, right? So you're you're not just going all in and and from day one, I'm not um, creating a GP partnership and a podcast and a blog. Like I'm not doing all that. I'm taking right. one piece at a um, and it's really testing to see whether that's something you that you want to do long term. So that was that was kind of my approach. No, that's a that's a good approach. I think it's interesting because it sometimes go goes against what has been taught to most people who are entrepreneurs. What do we say? Uh, ready, fire, aim. Right? You're just just start throwing stuff and seeing if it hits the wall. And when it does, you're like, okay, cool. Something hits the wall. But what we don't take into account is when the second or the third thing hits the wall. And this is kind of the situation I find myself in. Started doing the podcast. Then I was like, okay, well, the podcast going well. I'm going to put it on video. Now I'm doing the YouTube and I still have the Instagram and now I'm working on the LinkedIn. I'm like, okay, something's got to, you know, you got to, something's got to give in doing all that. But that single item first approach is mm-hmm. the same way people, we approach, we approach marketing. Direct to seller, you'll make some phone calls. You won't make phone calls and send out mail and send out text messages to the same number at the same time. It doesn't work like that. You go piece by piece yep. by piece. So that really, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So with that, with that lesson from you being an LP, what were the key things that you learned as an LP that you would recommend people take into um, be, when they become a GP, a general partner? Um, the, the first thing I would say, it's, it's a good question. I think the first thing that I would say is the more communication you can have, the better. Um, a lot of times I see sponsors provide monthly reporting, right? So there's, you can either do monthly or quarterly. And I've found that some sponsors will do monthly and they'll do it kind of half-heartedly or they won't provide a lot of meat in the updates. So then it just becomes a series of monthly updates that aren't very substantial or uh, substantive. And so, you know, for me, the the sponsors that communicate the best do it in a bi-monthly or quarterly, and they really pack a lot of content in there to tell you actually what's going on. Um, and it's not that I need to know what, you know, everything that's going on. I don't necessarily care as long as it's um, tracking along plan. Um, but it is it is a nice thing to have when you have a sponsor that's really communicating over and um, over and above what they probably should or could, and so you can really tell if they put some effort into the reporting. And so, as a limited partner, and and what I would tell to other GPs as a limited partner, the things that really stand out is your communication and how, so communication, how you interact with your LPs, and then your returns. I mean, that's really it. So if you want to be in a place where you're building an investor base that continually invests with you, that's the goal, right? You don't want to have to recycle new investors and have new lead sources. 
um, you want to keep those investors around. So the way to do that is through community returns and your performance. Those are those are going to be the the items that keep you coming back for keep your investors coming back and over and over. And so for me, if I'm looking at the LPs, I've been an LP in five points, uh, and if if I'm looking at you know the what what I've done now or what deals I'm in now, you know some of them I probably wouldn't go back to just because of the level of communication. It's just been you know decent but not great. Right. And I've seen right. other sponsors that do it better. So those would be some of the things that I would point out to point out to GPs. And then um, you know the other things is the other items that I would point out to is really helping an LP understand whether your assumptions are conservative or not. I think that's the biggest thing to help a, a limited partner. Um, ultimately, that's what a limited partner is trying to understand is how aggressive or conservative you're being. And so if you can help them by showing them um, how conservative you're being and and there's there's a few different categories, right, for that. That's um, number one, it's your pro, pro forma rents and your rent growth assumptions. Those are the main drivers to any uh, multifamily business plan. So if you're able to really articulate how you're being conservative in comparison to what you think you could actually achieve, huge, huge advantage and, and a huge um, confidence and trust builder for limited partners. I also look at as a limited partner, I also look at the stabilization timeline. So what's their assumption? What what types of rents are they assuming that they can achieve? Is it 150 or is it 300? And what's that timeline look like? Are we talking, do they think it's going to be 12 months, which is very aggressive? Or do they think the business plan is going to take 24, 28, 36 months, which is very conservative? So um, those are the types of things that often I have to dig deeper on as a limited partner to understand. And, and by having to do that, I'm now, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be much more prepared as a GP to really answer those questions and make sure that those are at the forefront um, of my presentations. Mm, that's so then the, so then the, the myth that people, and you'll hear this sometimes in some of the groups and some of the REAs and some of the multifamily meetups is that some, some of the GPs will say, Oh, you don't want to over communicate. You don't want to bug or annoy people. But based on what you're saying, it's not necessarily how often, but how much information you pack in that moment when you send something in, correct? Yeah, 100%. I would, I would rather have a quarterly report that was packed of information mm-hmm. than a monthly report with with um, minimal information and just kind of a, a routine update. I would rather have um, something that's less frequent in my inbox, but mm-hmm. I'm able to, when I, when I actually sit down and spend the time to review it and review the numbers, right. that I actually really gain something from it versus, versus getting a half-hearted update. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And speaking, speaking of matter of fact of numbers, the underwriting process, uh, the old destructo (laughs) underwriting process. One of, I'd have to say this is for those watching and listening. My thought process is that underwriting is the most difficult part of the multifamily piece. And this is just for me personally. And the reason I think this, Stephen, is because it's, it's so much, it's such a long and deep rabbit hole you can go down. You can get into taxes. You can get into insurance. You can get into what if a typhoon comes through? What if there's alligators falling from the sky? You can get into all kinds of great stuff in underwriting. For the people who are starting out though, it it becomes a really, really daunting thing to see. How are you able to deal with that underwriting piece or or even then have you dealt with the underwriting piece when it came to your, your investing process? Yeah. So first, before I answer that question, I think it's, I think before you get to that, you really have to understand where you can add value to a sponsorship team. Um, mm-hmm. 
there there's there's a few pieces to the puzzle that need to be made in order to be a, a an effective GP ownership team. One of which is you know your experience, uh, the credibility, being able to sign on a on a um, non recourse loan, having the net worth requirements, the liquidity requirements, being able to raise, and then doing the underwriting and the acquisitions process. And so when I looked at that as a whole. And in fact, you know, when I looked at that as a whole, I felt like my skill sets and what I could bring to the table at this point in time was the acquisitions piece, was the underwriting piece, because the other pieces are a little bit tougher. And those are the ones that I wanted to partner with. Um, And funny story to that is I actually have a really good friend of mine. um, And we started this last year and we started working together. And we and we realized that we were both the same piece of the puzzle. We were both that hustle, that acquisitions, that underwriting piece. Right. And neither of us really had the ability to raise. Neither of us had the <laughs> credibility. <laughs> and and so you start as you start to um, go through the process, you you start to realize that you need other partners and and other people that can bring and add value where you can't. And so for me to to go back to your question, um, that's where I felt like I could add the most value in that acquisitions phase. And so for me, as I started on that journey and, and kind of learning more about how to properly underwrite, you're right, it's it's a daunting piece to the puzzle. And it's something that uh, you can get caught up, as you mentioned, in, in a lot of the different what-if scenarios. And so the way I approached it was the first thing that I did was, you know, automatically start watching YouTube videos and start figuring out who are the experts in the subject and start immediately following them. So, um, and reading, reading content on it and reading books on it just to get oriented that I I would, I didn't want to pick up a spreadsheet yet. I just wanted Mm -hmm. to get oriented into the overarching concepts. Then once you start to get get a feel for it, and by the way, this this process doesn't just pertain to underwriting; it pertains to anything in life, right? Uh, right. You start to get oriented. You start to get oriented to what the subject matter e- expert is, or what the subject is, and then you start peeling back that onion, and you start to take it piece by piece. Um, so what I would do is I, I would start underwriting a deal and I would then get feedback and, and you can't get feedback from everyone at once um, and then expect to get it over and over and over. Right. Everybody's going to be like, come on, God, come on, Steven, like, stop. Like, I'm, I've got to do my own day job here. I've got to underwrite my own deal. So, you know, one one deal, I would go to my lender. The next deal, I would go to my property manager. The next deal, I would go to um, a, a very experienced mentor of mine. And once you start to hone in on specific items within the underwriting process, mm-hmm. you start to feedback from experts in all the different areas. And then it starts to build, it starts, that knowledge starts to snowball. Um, and so I would say that, as with anything in life, it it, uh, it starts with assimilating yourself to the subject matter. Then it starts by peeling back one piece at a time. But the the biggest key is getting feedback, and so figuring out who and where you can get feedback. There's a lot of uh, underwriting groups, as you know, that um, you know can provide a lot of value, and uh, quite a few books, and and there's plenty of models out there. So I think that that's you know that's how I've ultimately began to to do that, and then. Mm-hmm. Kind of that final and culmination step is then you start putting LOIs in and you start to get feedback from mm, brokers. Yep. Stacking up against the competition, how you're stacking up against, you know, maybe how how others are thinking about uh, structuring the deal. And so 
for me, that's kind of where I'm at is I'm, I'm getting feedback from brokers saying, Hey, you've, you've got to be a little bit more aggressive here. Um, you're coming in, you know, whatever, 300, 500 K less or short than, than the other groups that we took to best buy. So that, that to me is kind of the, the phased approach of, of how to approach that acquisition and underwriting process. Wow, that's, that's amazing advice, man. You're going to have to shoot me some of those books because I'm going through a few and I'm just, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just <laughs> over my head. My God. Uh, <laughs> but we'll talk about that offline. But I think something that you said that really stands out that I don't we don't really realize enough is that as you're learning, the broker is actually learning you at the same time, which I found interesting in my first couple forays and, and hearing some of the conversations with LOAs and with the underwriting. Our underwriter would get on the phone with people and they talk back and forth. And the as they're doing that, the broker's starting to understand their thought process on what they're looking for. So as you're looking for those of you who are working on multifamily or even single family, as you're talking to that real estate agent or that broker and you're saying, hey, this is the percentage I want to be in. I want to be in 2%. I want to be at a 10% cap rate. I want to be a BC class, whatever it might be. Just know that if you're feeding them that information, that information is going to their pocket so what their their job normally is, they're going to find something along those lines and bring it to you. All you have to do at that point is perform. Now, with the with the word perform being the last thing I said, I want to know, Stephen, because we don't get to talk enough about those tough conversations we have to have with LPs um, when it comes to multifamily investing. What's the toughest conversation you've had to have thus far in your multifamily journey? Yeah, I, I, I would point to... I would point to a investment that I'm in. It's a 200 unit property out of Dallas, Texas. And it's, you know, it's not a conversation that I've had with a GP per se. Um, you know, I, I know the group and I'm, I'm with 30 other investors because this sponsorship group communicates so well, they've, they've eliminated like every question that I've had. But to give you, to give you an example of, of what kinds of things can happen to a property, uh, they, with this property, a 200 unit property, it's had some occupancy and delinquency challenges through COVID. Not, not substantial, but it's had challenges. And we're finally starting to hit the, the, uh, the other side of the, of the tunnel here. And, and in February, January, February timeframe, starting to get out of the COVID uh, situations and delinquencies. Occupancy right. is starting to tick up. And then the snowstorm happens in Dallas. And it completely... <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> It completely um, took this property and just wrecked it. Um, there was over a million dollars worth of damages that happened, and so for the sponsorship group, um, you know, we have we have reserve accounts, and uh, with those reserve accounts, we had to front the the the, um, uh, the, the, the insurance. We had to front that insurance um, to wow. pay the contractor to fix the leaks immediately. Um, and so in, in order to do that, you know, then the, the sponsorship group is having to kind of walk, walk through that with the limited partners. But because they did such a great job of articulating the situation, showing the pictures, um, and not just saying, hey, hey, limited partners, we have a problem, but hey, this was the problem. This was the uh, solution that we came up with. Here are the outcomes that we're starting to see. Because it was so beautifully laid out and communicated, mm-hmm. I didn't have any questions. Um, I felt like it was being taken control of and, and you know, properly being worked on. Not that I was in a position to do anything about it, but it right. just makes it feel better as a limited partner. So um, that that was by far a, a really tough communication because, look, I mean, the, the GP sponsorship team is like, 
hey guys, I know, I know we just went through COVID and we had to delay a couple of quarterly payments, right. but we're going to have to delay a, another quarterly payment because we, you know, we just had to front the insurance money until we get that claim money back. So that was a difficult conversation for them to have. And, and it was something that um, I felt like they did a great job of, of navigating. Sheesh, man. So... <laughs> First, I, I you, you're going to understand it, Stephen, but the audience may not. In the military, we have a habit of laughing at things that are just absolutely tragic. <laughs> and COVID on top of a snowstorm, that's getting up there in the tragedy realm. Because from, from what we know and from what we experience, Murphy's Law is everywhere. And what can go wrong, 100% will go wrong. Uh, and that's why you'll see myself and maybe Stephen giggle sometimes about some of the stuff that we'll go through or experience. And with that yeah, with that thought process, go ahead, Steven. Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and one other comment I thought of is like, when, when, I, when I'm seeing that play out, uh, mm-hmm. it's a good realization to say in that situation, or if something like that were to happen to me as a general, as a general partner in a property, could I navigate that? Or, right. you know, these are some of the types of situations that you could come into contact with. So, for me, it was it was really eye opening um, the amount of things that could go wrong in a short period. But uh, you know, if you're if you're navigating it and communicating it well, the investors will understand. And I think right. that um, you know, for me, it was really good. Again, going back to that limited partner experience, I mean, it's just really good to see that um, kind of kind of have a front row seat to that. Right. So now, now that you mentioned that as an LP, one thing I wonder if you could go into deeper about is for you when you're sitting into that office offering and you're sitting on that zoom call and they're talking, they're going through their slideshow, they're going through their presentation. What are the, what are the top three things that you look for that you would recommend others look for to make sure that their money is in a safe space? The first and foremost thing that you've got to look for is track record. So track record, you're betting at the end of the day, you're betting on the jockey, not the horse. You're betting on that person to execute a plan. There are plenty of properties out there that you know are good opportunities, but if they don't have the right operator, if they don't have the right um, sponsorship team that or that can navigate a situation like that, that can fire their property manager if they have to, that can make those tough decisions, you have to know that you're investing with the right person. And so whether that's track record or trust, um, it's one of the two. It can't, you, you can't, you can't do it without those. Second is then you start to deal, then you start to look into the deal itself. Um, you know, for me, I'm looking, the first thing I look at is, you know, a, as a limited partner in several different um, opportunities, the one thing I was kind of working towards is diversifying. I, I want to be diversified across regions. I want to be diversified across property asset classes. And I want to be diversified across sponsorship groups as well. So, you know, there, you're just kind of limiting your risk exposure there. Uh, so that's another thing I would think about. And then when when also you're an LP, um, you know, the, the next thing after that is you're looking at the return profile of the property. Does it fit what I'm looking for? Is it a three to five year hold? Is it a seven to ten year hold? Uh, what's the strategy? Does it um, is it is it designed to be a cash flowing property like a uh, a sit on it type of cash flow plan, or is it a value add uh, driven business plan? So 
understanding that dynamic and, and what is your risk tolerance is, mm-hmm. is probably the next phase. And then you start going into, you know, what types of returns do I want to see on my money? Um, am I comfortable with, am I comfortable with a 14 IRR or am I trying to shoot for something like a 17 or an 18 IRR? Um, what's that equity multiple look like? What, what type of cash flow do I want to see every month or every uh, year? So I think those are the things to ask. Uh, then from there, I mean, you can get into a, a whole different level of detail when you start asking, you know, things that I mentioned earlier, which is um, understanding uh, their business plan, understanding what's conservative, what's not conservative, and and just really diving in from there. But th- those would be the ways that I would start to think about um, as an LP investor. And for me, knowing that and knowing having done that limited partner experience and knowing what I look for in a limited partner engagement, I feel like is going to make me a much better GP um, in order to, in order to be able to speak and talk to it. But then also when I'm on the acquisitions process and and knowing what to look for um, specifically. That's a, That's a great bit of information there, Stephen. Well done, sir. Well done. That's fantastic. That's information people can actually take and use and and be dangerous with. Um, so I know I know you're tight. You've got things to do in life, and I don't want to suck up all your time. At least not this time. We're probably gonna do another one because I do want to talk about at some point leadership with you and your thought process in that and how it applies to what you do now, and even then how you tend on using that as you go forward. But for now, I'm gonna be very respectful. And we're gonna we're gonna hit to the closeout section. And the closeout section is we I ask two questions every time, all the time. The first question is a troop to task. And what this troop to task is, is you give the listener one thing they can do to start their path down the same path that you've already taken in their investment uh journey. The first thing that I I mean, this this may have been cited by your other guests, but the first thing that I would do that I would recommend to anyone is find your North Star. So what what are you actually trying to achieve when you set out to, you know, invest, create a business? What what it what is it that you're trying to achieve? Um, are you trying to achieve uh, financial independence? Are you trying to achieve um, being able to break away from your W two job? What what is it that you're trying to do? So. I would first start um, to think about uh, those, you know, that type of um, burning why for yourself. Because if you don't have that, if you're not dead set on your why, when everything else starts to um, not go your way, when things are getting too tough, when it's when it's difficult to wake up at 5 a.m. and underwrite properties, when it's um, when that going gets tough, it's going to be really difficult to um, get to that next level. Because oftentimes when when you're kind of running up against a roadblock and I found this over and over and over with um, my investment career is when you're starting to run into a roadblock and you're starting to feel like you're not going to be able to attain that goal you're you're hitting up against a resistant point you're almost there you're almost there and you have to keep going you have to keep pushing and you have to buckle down on your consistency and you have to buckle down on your discipline. And if you do that and you keep showing up every day and you keep giving it all, you keep getting 1% better, you're going to break through. And it, it happens time and time again. And and if you don't have that burning why, like if you don't have that reason to do it, um, it you're, you're not, it's going to become easy to break away from it. It's going to be an excuse. You're not going to have that that uh, that extra um, th- to get you over the hump. So that that would be my 
kind of troop to task, if you will, is is really identify what in life, um, what you want to get out of it and, and what's that burning why for you. I like it. I like it. That's really great advice. Our next question is, what question do you wish you were asked more often and what's the answer to that question? That's a good question. I think that, um, you know, for me, I, I would probably point to um, LinkedIn. I would probably say I would like to be asked more why I'm so engaging on LinkedIn or why I post so much on LinkedIn because and the answer to that is because it's all it's all wrapped around my personal branding. Um, you know, for me, uh, for me, it's it's something that I looked at for a long time and I thought, no, I don't want to post. I don't want to be outgoing like because everybody in my company will see it. Everybody that I know that I'm connected with on a professional level will see <laughs> and what will they no, think really. and it starts to become it starts to become this um, it starts to become this like psychological barrier but I started watching other people that were very active on it and I started following um, a couple a couple of folks in particular that um, actually offered masterminds and coaching on it and I kind of took that leap of faith to to kind of put put that as a priority for myself in 2021 and it's paid pay dividends um, in the amount of connections and the amount of people that I've met. Uh, heck, I think we've met, I think we met on LinkedIn. And so yep. it's just met, it's just been um, a huge driver into um, the growth that I've had this year. I've actually started a, I've co started co-hosting an Atlanta family or excuse me, the, an Atlanta multifamily investor meetup um, nice. in person meetup. And a lot of that stemmed from LinkedIn and what I was doing on LinkedIn. And, and I think it's just created a lot of open doors and there's a lot of techniques to do it uh, and do it correctly. But I think for me, um, if, if I'm looking again, going back to that burning why and what I want to do later in life, um, you know, I'm a real estate investor. I love it. I'm passionate about it. And ultimately that's all funneling into a brand that I'm, that I'm working to build um, for later in life. Um, it. And it's, and it's a long-term game. You've got to be just like real estate. You got to be committed for the long haul. You have said nothing but the truth, my friend. That is nothing but the absolute truth. And just hearing you talk about branding, I got a little excited. So I'm, before I get too excited, I want to say, man, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for coming on live and being in front of this wonderful and beautiful audience that I can't see, but I'm sure they can see us. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure you have the ability to put your information out. So if you could, please give your information out, let people know how they can get in touch with you and get a hold of you. Yeah. So the best way to reach me really is LinkedIn. Um, so it's uh, Stephen Quisenberry. Um, and then at the my email address is stephenquisenberry9 at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, that's those are the two best places to find me. If you're in Atlanta, would love to have you come out to our in-person meetup. Um, we've got uh, a monthly meetup that we're doing every, every third Thursday. So we'd love to have you out there. And and uh, yeah, always, always looking to collaborate, looking to uh, talk to other investors, see what they're doing. Um, love hearing uh, different perspectives. And and yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Oliver. It was a blast. And and speaking of personal branding, I might have to get some tips for you with that with that background. I mean, <laughs> I've got you covered, good. my friend. I've got you covered. I got I'm working on some things. I'm working on things. I've got you covered. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been Oliver Perry. This is Stephen Quisenberry. We thank you guys so much for tuning in, taking a part. We hope you enjoyed. We hope you got some value. Please feel free to reach out to Steven and you can even reach out to me at the Oliver Perry on IG as well as link or just Oliver Perry on LinkedIn. Sorry, <laughs> just Oliver Perry on LinkedIn and YouTube as well. So 
Thank you so much again. Remember, you're better than you were, but you're not half as good as you're going to be. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Oliver Perry Show. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. And as always, be sure to follow Oliver at The Oliver Perry on Instagram, Oliver Perry on LinkedIn, and The Oliver Perry Show on YouTube. Until next time, take care.